In the name of the God of creation who loves us all. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to All Saints on this 19th Sunday after Pentecost. It's a joy to be with you all this morning. And I bring greetings from the Cathedral of St. Philip and from Columbia Seminary, where I've taught for many years. And I have to tell you, I'm considered on loan from both of those institutions, from Holy Family Episcopal Church in Jasper, the small mountain parish that gave birth to my priesthood and from which parish I am considered to be a missionary to the cathedral in the wilderness frontier of Buckhead. (laughs) It's hard out there. I want to thank my colleague Martha Stern, my dear friend, for inviting me to be among you today. All Saints holds a special place in my heart, having worked down through the years with Harry Pritchett and Barbara Brown Taylor in various capacities, and without the persistent mischievousness of Bill Swift and the Holy Spirit and her wisdom, I wouldn't be standing up here this morning. I had the honor of joining your vestry a couple of weeks ago on their retreat and getting to know this remarkable group of people leading All Saints, an amazing staff, an amazing group of clergy, Martha and Tim, and now an equally amazing Kimberly Jackson. Welcome, Kimberly. So let's give them all a hand, shall we, during this time of transition. Well, in the gospel for today, we find a rich man who, until it is too late, has been blind to the suffering of Lazarus, a man whom he passed by each day, and in so doing, relegated to the status of the other. Lazarus does not speak in this passage, nor does he need to, really. One can imagine in the spaces between these men a whole lifetime of dialogue. As Martin Luther King said in his letter from the Birmingham jail, the indifference of those who know better and do not act speaks volumes. Jesus is reminding us in this text of the need for hospitality to the other and of our covenant to go out and respect the dignity of every human being. He's reminding us of the core value of compassion in response to that suffering and taking action as we deem it appropriate. Well, I don't know about all of you, but I need to be reminded of this because over the years, my working definition of sin has become anything that would cut me off from others, from myself, and from God. To me... Hell is that place where I have been blind to the gift of relationship, especially where there is suffering, and I do not have to die to go there. I have been there already. I see more of myself in the rich man in this text than I would like, and I don't mean monetarily. Professors don't make a whole lot of money. But what I do mean is though occasions when I allow my own forms of idolatry to blind me to the suffering of others. 
And so I create my own personal golden calves, each in the service of my efforts to pretend that I am not vulnerable and that I am in control, both of which are illusions. This idolatry can take on the role of an entitlement born of fear and anxiety, and this has so often been the currency of exchange in my theological and psychological economy of scarcity. Today's gospel, friends, is both a cautionary tale and an invitation to transformation by way of the encounter with difference and the compassion that can grow in the liminal, sacred spaces between us all. Recently, I was talking with two clinical colleagues, both of whom are smarter than I am, and one of whom was a college English major. One asked the other if she knew much about Shakespeare, to which my friend replied, not as much as he knows about me. This resonated deeply with me and rang true, and I found myself remembering my own relationship to King Lear, my favorite of Shakespeare's plays. It's a play about fathers and daughters and sons, of course, you all know this, and about the limits and vicissitudes of human nature. It's a tragedy, to be sure, as is the parable in today's gospel, by the way, but it contains much wisdom about life and families and about kindness and despair and compassion and redemption. My favorite part of King Lear is actually a subplot in which the aging Earl of Gloucester is, as the wonderful author Wendell Berry has put it, recalled from his despair so that he may die in his full humanity. Wendell Berry reminds us the old Earl of Gloucester has been blinded in retribution for his loyalty to the king. And like Lear, he is guilty of what my erstwhile colleague Walter Brueggemann called an operational theology of scarcity. He lives as if life is predictable and ultimately knowable and within his control. He is, in short, a man in despair. Moreover, despite his many admirable qualities, the Earl of Gloucester lives as if there simply is not enough grace to go around. And our theology teaches us otherwise, does it not? And as such, the prevailing paradigm it is, is that his life is informed primarily by that in relation to which he is afraid. And so like the rich man in our text for today, Gloucester is asking the wrong questions until for him it is almost too late. The results are predictable. He has falsely accused and alienated his only and loyal and loving son, Edgar. Exiled and sentenced to death, Edgar disguises himself as a drifter and a beggar and thus disguised to his father, he becomes, in fact, his father's guide. Gloucester asks to be led to the cliffs of Dover, where, in his despair, he intends to throw himself onto the rocks below. Edgar's self-appointed task is to save his father, and he succeeds. 
For in the wonderful language of Shakespeare, Gloucester dies eventually twixt two extremes of passion, joy, and grief as God intends. Well, this is a cautionary tale not only for priests and pastoral counselors and family therapists. By the way, the family systems dynamics in Lear are fascinating. But it's relevant to all of us and to the gospel text for today. It's a journey less Odyssean than Abrahamic because the final destination is uncertain. Remember that Odysseus longed only to return home to Ithaca and Penelope and all he knew while Sarah and Abraham left on a journey whose ultimate destination was then and now remains unknown. And so as such, King Lear is fundamentally a story about transformation and choices and grace. You see, Edgar does not want his father to give up on life. To do so is to pass beyond the possibility of change and redemption. And so Edgar does not leave his father to the edge of the cliff, but rather only pretends to have done so. Gloucester renounces the world, blesses his ostensibly absent son, and as Shakespeare says, falls forward and swoons. Upon regaining consciousness, Gloucester is led by his son to believe that he has somehow miraculously survived the fall, and pretending to be a passerby who has seen this, Edgar assumes the remarkable and life-giving role of a spiritual guide to his own father. In an exchange that will be familiar to many of us who have tried to help loved ones in trouble, Gloucester, dismayed to find himself still alive, attempts to refuse help. Away, he says, let me die. And after several lines in which he attempts to persuade his father that he is a stranger, Edgar then speaks what are for me the most lovely and significant lines in the entire play. Father, thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again. In so doing, Edgar calls his father back from despair and into the properly subordinated human life of grief and joy where change and redemption remain possible. Well, as the father of two sons, I have many memories in relation to which I identify with this man, Gloucester, memories of my children becoming father to the man. And there have been other young teachers as well who called me back to life when in my hubris and idolatry and fear I neglected to ask for God's love and grace and forgiveness and mercy. And I, like the rich man in Luke's gospel, was blind. Many years ago, between stints at Vanderbilt Divinity School, I spent a year at Atlanta's Eggleston Children's Hospital as a chaplain intern. My wife, Vicki, and I were young and poor graduate students, and we had two very young sons. Truth told, most days at that hospital were abjectly terrifying for me. 
The hospital treated the sickest children from states around and for many was the treatment of last resort. I struggle to maintain my fragile objectivity while visiting the children and their frantically worried parents at night. As I read to my sons and held them close to me, I worried over every sniffle and cough. I imagined the worst that could happen because I saw it happen every day. And in my fear, I became more and more isolated and part of me simply shut down. And then one beautiful Easter morning, late in my internship, I was assigned to the children's chapel. I had been up all night, and in my arrogance born of fear, I told myself that I had more important things to do, better places to be, that I had earned the right to be at home with my wife and sons. I wanted to be anywhere but in that hospital. And yet there I was in the makeshift playroom that doubled as a chapel on Sundays, surrounded by toys and art supplies and bereft of children save one lone soul in a wheelchair, patiently waiting for the chaplain to arrive. His name was Walter, and he was from Homerville, Georgia, well below the Nat line, maybe some of you know it. Walter was nine years old and wearing glasses with lenses the thickness of Coke bottles and his kidneys were failing. He desperately needed a transplant. His mother introduced him and he reached out his hand to shake mine and no doubt needed some blessed time alone. His mother departed for the cafeteria, entrusting her son to my care. In an offhanded, even careless way, I suggested that we draw together. He seemed excited by this and said, will you, will you draw the animals from Noah's Ark? Sure, I said. And we sat together, juice and cookies, our Easter morning Eucharist, me awkwardly drawing stick animals from the ark in an absent-minded and disinterested way, Walter smiling and nodding approvingly, enthusiastically suggesting new animals in turn. And all the while, the Easter sun rose over the incredibly beautiful azaleas and dogwoods blooming in the courtyard outside, and there I was, wishing to be somewhere else, even as I congratulated myself on this art therapy as pastoral care. Because, you see, I was not fully present. I was not paying attention. When Walter's mother returned, I arrogantly assured her, we've been having such a marvelous time. We've been drawing, I said, delighted with my art therapy on the fly. Drawing, she asked quizzically. Walter can't draw, chaplain. Walter lost his sight a year ago because of his illness. Walter is blind. Well, there it was, my own isolation and self-importance exposed, Walter serving as my own personal Lazarus, 
and me blind to the realities of his suffering. I sat there in my shame and embarrassment, and in the silence, Walter's small hand groped for a crayon on the table, picked it up, and held it out to me, smiling, while his other hand clasped hard around mine, wanting me to announce having drawn just one more animal. Because, you see, it wasn't the pictures that mattered. After all, Walter couldn't see them. What mattered most to him was relationship, and he had already forgiven me a long time ago. And so, dear ones, like Gloucester and like the rich man in the gospel for today, I was presuming to know the world prior to paying attention to the life-giving possibilities in that moment. I had relegated Walter to the status of the other. I, like Gloucester, was blind and in despair But Walter had other ideas. It was almost as if, I would say it was exactly like he said to me, Thy life's a miracle. Speak yet again. And so our prayer, my friends, must be that we will have the grace to live into the mystery of the life we are living now, which after all is the Paschal mystery we have been given. Near the end of the play, King Lear derisively asks Gloucester how it is that a blind man can see how this world goes. I see it feelingly, Gloucester says in his restored humanity. And so now I rarely make a pastoral call or sit with a patient or teach a class or advise a student that I don't think about Walter, just like I am right now. Walter chose to stay in relationship to me, and he brought me out of my isolation, pushing me to do the good, harrowing shadow work that is still unfolding right now with all of you. He is still my teacher. And so as the poet Mary Oliver has said, truly we live with mysteries too marvelous to be understood. How grass can be nourishing in the mouths of the lambs, how rivers and stones are forever in allegiance with gravity while we ourselves dream of rising. How two hands touch and the bonds will never be broken. How people come from delight or the scars of damage to the comfort of a poem. Let me keep my distance always from those who think they have the answers. Let me keep company always with those who say, look, and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads. Amen.